Support for Innovation Hub comes from Dana-Farber Cancer Institute, working to unleash the immune system's power to fight cancer and help develop promising new therapies. Videos, white papers, and patient stories are available at discovercarebelieve.org. Welcome to Innovation Hub. I'm Kara Miller. A while ago, I interviewed a guy who had started a business. It was a service, and he tried really hard to make it work for his customers. But the catch was this. The more pleased you were with the service, the less likely you were to come back again. The guy's name was Christian Rudder, and the business he started was the dating website OkCupid. When I talked to him, it occurred to me that it was very weird to overlay something that's been around forever, dating, with this very new technology, the internet. What I didn't realize at the time is that it's not just dating sites that are a recent invention, it's dating itself. Dating is relatively new for humans, and a lot like the web, it may not have quite matured yet. Maura Weigel is the author of the book Labor of Love, The Invention of Dating. Maura, thanks for being here. Thanks for having me. So you talk about this notion of dating being invented. Mm-hmm. When would you say uh, it was invented? Well, I like to say that dating was invented in 1896 <laughs> because that's the first <laughs> time. really specific. That's really specific. Good. It actually was invented twice. 1896 is the first time we see the word date being used in the way that we now use it on the historical record in print. And it's used in a column by someone named George Aide. He talks about young working class people, office workers, and young women who work in garment factories making dates is the phrase that he uses. And what's interesting about it is that in that period, this practice of dating, what we now think of as the most traditional kind of date possible, which is to say someone usually male asking someone usually female out to dinner mm-hmm. looks like prostitution. So in the early, the early part of my research was in police archives and vice commission reports with all these people who are so shocked by the invention of dating that they kind of can't process it, this idea that young people would be finding one another on their own. Does that mean that um, you're looking at police records, does that mean they are uh, arresting men for asking women out to dinner? Oh, no, they're not arresting men for asking women out to dinner. Uh, they arrest women for accepting invitations to dinner. Really? And often it's not. Um, in some cases, there are arrests. You know, the line with sex work is and then as now, I think, sort of hazy and difficult to draw in some places. But there's also a lot of intervention from sort of social workers and progressive era do-gooders who are concerned about often young immigrant women, young women of color, poor women accepting a meal or accepting a drink in return for what's presumed to be some kind of sexual favor, romantic attention. Mm. So yeah, it's blurry. Some of them, some of the women get sent off to reformatories where they're taught to be good garment workers and stop getting hot food for, for free. <laughs> um, and They're uh, going to dinner. They're sent yeah. off to be reformed. Exactly. And, you know, women did, of course, women, because, I mean, dating, part of the invention of dating is also about wage inequality and structural sexism. And you see interview after interview in the 1900s and even 19-teens where you'll have a young woman who, say, works making hats or something saying, look, if I didn't let men take me out to dinner, I'd only eat three nights a week or something. Or, you know, I couldn't have a hot meal if I didn't let men take me out on dates. So anyway, the invention is is not only an invention, but a shocking one at the beginning. So 
why, you know, you talked about uh, the first use of the word dating. Yeah. Um, but that doesn't mean the beginning of the concept. Was the concept actually being sort of invented and created in the late 1800s? And why in the late 1800s? Haven't people always kind of gotten together and tried to figure out, is this the person I like, or actually, is this the person I like kind of thing? Well, there's certainly always been, you know, every human society and many animal ones have recognizable courtship rituals. So ways that young people or young members of a species at reproductive age find one another. But for most of human history and most times and most places, that has happened in private spaces and it's been supervised by family members or by, say, members of the clergy or a rabbi or in some cases like a factory owner would host get-togethers for his workers because uh, it's important for the factory owner that they reproduce. Uh, <laughs> but what's really innovative or new about dating is this idea that young people would be going out into public spaces and doing this on their own, you know, without you think, imagine like the Jane Austen scenario or the Middlemarch scenario right. where mom's always kind of hanging out in the back of the parlor. Right. Um, what's what's new is that they're going out on their own and it happens when it does for, I'd say, two big reasons. One is urbanization, very broadly speaking. So you have large numbers of young people coming to cities in the United States in the 1880s, 1890s. In the 1890s, because of the financial crisis of 1893, you especially have lots of women who might not have worked before going to the cities to try to find work because families can no longer support all their daughters right. in the country. And that brings us to the second factor, which is women entering the waged workforce, working outside the home en masse. And the 1890s, around 1900, you see a huge uptick in those numbers. I want to say nearly 50 percent, if not if not 50 percent of unmarried women in 1900 work outside the home. Hmm. And that's revolutionary right. in terms of how courtship works. I mean, think about what a big deal it is in a Jane Austen novel when one new single guy shows up. Right. <laughs> um, and then just think about what it was like to walk down the street on your way to work in New York if you were a young woman doing that circa 1900. Well, and especially if you had come from some, you know, small town in Iowa and you you kind of knew what was available there to you in terms of people who were your age who you could marry. And then all of a sudden what was available to you in New York would just, you know, probably yeah. unthinkable, uh, you know, back where you would come from. Completely unthinkable. And this public element of it is a big deal, too. I think because the first men and women who are doing who are dating, who are going out and mixing in this way, tend to be working class or poor. There just isn't space in the home for them to meet in the chaperone way. So in some cases, their parents are there. But uh, there's a line one writer I talk about in the book named Samuel Chotzinov uses where he says, you know, there was no privacy in our home. Privacy could only be had in public. And so you yeah. went out. And that's still true to an yeah. extent, the yeah. idea that there's sort of a freedom and anonymity associated with being in public, actually, as opposed to among people you know. Yeah. So let's say you do go out on a date in that first decade or mm -hmm. two of uh, dating. Let's assume you don't get arrested for it. Um, yes. What <laughs> does the date look like? Like, what do you do? Where do you go? Well, it depends where you are and, you know, what exactly your means are. But t typical dates, dream dates of the uh, of the late 1800s were often, you know, going to a restaurant, going or meeting in a bar, which, again, had been male social spaces for previously. So had restaurants. So it was new to have women who weren't 
clearly prostitutes in those spaces. It might involve going to a movie. You know, I think it's 1907 when you start to have dozens of Nickelodeons, you know, thus called mm-hmm, because it costs right. a nickel, it costs five cents to go there. But you have this explosion of cheap movie theaters in New York, Philadelphia, Chicago. So that becomes a very popular place to go. Then as now, a movie is a great place to cuddle, whatever the movie's about. And the police are concerned about that too, by the way. <laughs> and uh, and let's see, boardwalks and amusement parks are very popular. Uh, Coney Island in New York and the, sort of the tunnel of love in Coney Island was a big place to go uh, for the for the new urban working classes. So dance halls also were popular places. The park was another place where sometimes many stricter parents, immigrant parents, you see in accounts that young people say, oh, you know, my parents wouldn't let me go to the dance hall, but it was okay to go to the park. Right. So they figured, you know, what could the kids get up to in the park? Well, maybe a lot as it happens, but <laughs> the parents trusted it. You see political associations and sort of young people's clubs could also be places where uh, folks would meet initially. Well, you also said that this was an invention in some ways that was pioneered by the lower classes. Mm -hmm. So in the beginning, were the middle classes and the upper classes, were they part of dating or were they still doing like the old school set them up in the parlor kind of thing? They were definitely doing the old school thing for longer. And it's absolutely true that it's a working class invention. Mm. I joked that uh, dating is invented twice. I like to say the second invention of dating is in 1914, which is the first time I know of that someone sort of proper uses it on the record uh, to refer to middle class people. Again, that's the Ladies Home Journal. Mm. And there's a story about a young woman who's a young college student, sorority sister. She says something about the young gentleman to whom I have granted the monopoly of my dates. And Hmm. it's in scare quotes, but the writer does not seem to feel the need to define what that means. Right. And she's talking about, you know, a nice, white, middle class, respectable, I'm putting heavy scare quotes around all of these terms, (laughs) college girl. And it's really through university. I mean, the university plays a huge role in how dating goes from being this sort of dubious or look down upon working class activity to being a sort of aspirational activity is, you know, when you have huge numbers of young men and women going to college together. World War One also plays a role, I think. But it's in the era of the flappers and the fussers, the sort of this side of paradise, Great Gatsby era, that you start to see dating move from the urban working classes to finally the upper, sort of more upper, upper middle classes first. And then it's really later that it becomes a solidly middle class mass American institution. So then if you fast forward in the history of dating to the 1960s and 70s, I wonder if there's another big upheaval. Because I think about uh, Betty Friedan writing The Feminine Mystique and what women, what many women are aiming towards and looking towards, you know, life at home with the kids is, um, is very different. When the women's movement comes along, does that Does that change? It definitely changes dramatically. One thing I would say about Friedan and, you know, The Feminine Mystique, I think it comes out in 63, but it's really a book about the 50s in a lot of ways. She worked on it for a long time, and I feel as if she's describing, you know, the early 60s or this funny transitional moment. But what's funny about The Feminine Mystique, and Friedan gets into this, is that that 50s ideal that is talked about as traditional is really rather new. I mean, women of the 20s, 30s, 40s married later, Hmm. worked in greater numbers. 
it's very hard to measure these things, but there's some evidence that they were more sexually promiscuous, or at least, you know, they married later, so they had more partners. And then it's the 50s has this, it's sort of after World War II, the 50s invents, you know, supposedly everything was the same for all of history until the 50s. <laughs> I think when we think of American history, people often feel that way. But the phrase sexual revolution is first coined in the 20s, about huh. the 20s, which we forget. So... That said, I think that the rise of the women's movement in the 60s is in many ways a revival of these older forms of sort of new womanhood from the 20s and maybe right, 30s. Right. I'm Kara Miller. You're listening to Innovation Hub. And I'm talking to Maura Weigel, author of Labor of Love, about the invention of dating. In the last few years, we have seen a number of articles, a lot of chatter, I feel like, about the idea that dating's done. You know, people definitely hang out. People do look for romantic partners, but the whole, hey, do you want to go out for a steak dinner and grab a movie afterwards? Uh, No one does that anymore. Do you think that's true? I don't know. I mean, a lot of the reason I wanted to write the book was to push back against those headlines. I think there was a big piece in the New York Times that like my mother and every aunt probably sent me because I was single that said the end of courtship question mark in 2013. (laughs) And I remember both as a single person not wanting to believe that, but also as an academic and historian looking at that and thinking like, really? Do we think that like human society is about to end? I mean, courtship (laughs) is something that has always existed everywhere. So I tend to say Look, the invention of dating is the invention of the death of dating or the crisis of dating and the sort of hysteria about changing norms regarding it is a perennial feature starting from those first vice squad arrests. Uh, Is the ritual of going out to dinner ending? Maybe. I mean, I think there's a lot of evidence that suggests that certain social and sexual scripts are changing depending where you are, that if you're on a college campus, for instance, it might be normal to have a few, you know, to have sexual encounters that then lead to going out to dinner. And by the way, we're not, I love to say this, we're not sluttier than our parents were. Uh, Actually, all the good data on this suggests that college kids now have fewer sexual partners uh, between matriculation and graduation. Interesting. See, I don't think people would think that because of all the stuff that's written about hooking up. And I think people would think clearly people are now more promiscuous than no, people tell were the olds. Okay. Tell all the olds that if you, <laughs> with the one proviso that people my age, people who grew up after Bill Clinton do not think oral sex is sex and older folks tend to. But all of the good data on this suggests that between matriculation and graduation, people now have fewer sexual partners than they did in the 80s or the 90s. So that's that's really a myth, the idea that that kids are getting more and more promiscuous or something. You know, I've taught at universities. I think there's something sort of hilarious, actually, about the way in which we tell these young students, oh, you can't expect anything to be a study gig. You always have to have your eye on opportunities. And, you know, you can't you you have to be flexible, you have to be adaptable. And then they look at hookup culture and say, oh, my God, what are you doing? And it's like, well, (laughs) you're applying exactly the logic they're told to apply to every other area of their lives, to their sex lives. And, you know, OkCupid profiles aren't so different from LinkedIn ones. I think there's a lot more overlap in how we fashion ourselves in those different markets than we might like to think. (laughs) Maura Weigel is the author of Labor of Love, The Invention of Dating. Thank you so much for this conversation. Thank you, Kara. It was a lot of fun. Know your eyes in the morning sun 
A lot has changed about dating and courtship since the 1800s. And we're going to have proper manners so you're right in line with the 1883 etiquette that's on our Facebook page, facebook.com slash innovation hub radio. From PRI and WGBH Radio, I'm Kara Miller, and this is Innovation Hub. Support for Innovation Hub comes from Dana-Farber Cancer Institute, working to unleash the immune system's power to fight cancer and help develop promising new therapies. Videos, white papers, and patient stories are available at discovercarebelieve.org. Scientific studies have repeatedly shown that friends make us healthier. But just as you're starting to think more about health, which is as you get older, our friendships start to disappear. It's unclear what you're supposed to do about that. And up till now, meeting people online has largely been about romance. Most people don't meet their best friends on a website. Elizabeth Bernstein is a columnist for The Wall Street Journal, and she thinks a shift may be coming. People lose friends starting sort of in young adulthood. After you're graduated, uh, you start to lose friends because you're going to have all these big life transitions. You graduate, you might meet a partner, and the research shows, in fact, that when we gain a romantic partner, we lose, on average, two friends. So right there, you're two friends down. But when you have children, you know, when you, you know, people go through other life changes as they get older, if they divorce, if there's a death of a spouse, if you move, job transitions, all of these things are tough on ongoing friendships. Of course, we all, you know, keep friends, but in the in you know in our group of friends, uh, we we will lose some. So it, you need to replenish. That's what I found. Well, and the irony is, of course, that you know, as I mentioned earlier, as you get older, having friends is particularly beneficial. Uh, it helps you to be healthier. It definitely does. And so there's a wide body of research that shows that people with friends and more friends live longer. They're healthier. Friendships decrease our blood pressure. They decrease stress. They decrease depression. You know, so they increase longevity. So having friends is very beneficial. It's very protective for our health. So the tricky thing, I would think, um, about this sort of paradox of you really need friends to increase your longevity, or that certainly helps, uh, but you lose friends as you age, is that when you get to be 30 or 50 or 70, it can be hard to figure out where you meet new friends. I mean, I guess when you have very young kids, you might meet the parents of the you know kids who go to preschool or school with your kids. Um, but what do you do when you're 50, 60, 70, and maybe like, you don't have kids in school anymore? Exactly. And even I, my friends with small children tell me this. Even with even when you have kids in school, you might not have anything in common with those other parents. So you're sort of thrown right. together. So where do you meet like-minded people when you're not with a group of people as you are in school every day, ongoing? Uh, it's very hard. You don't have a ready-made pool. And so you really have to look um, – you have to look with intention. You have to – you know, if you decide I need more friends or I need a friend – you know, I want another one. Uh, you need to really look for it and plan for it. Same as, you know, if you were looking for a romantic partner. Well, so you decided, okay, I need more friends. I'm going to go look for some. <laughs> How did you come to that decision? 
Well, I moved to Miami from New York a few years ago, and, you know, I met friends. But, you know, recently I realized, you know, some of my friendships in New York are uh, tapering. I won't say tapering off, but, you know, I talk to them less. And I did see this interesting research um, that was published in the British Journal of Psychology this winter that said, you know, people with more friends are happier unless they're highly intelligent. (laughs) And if you're highly intelligent, you actually are happier with fewer friends. So that kind of got me thinking about friendships and why. And at the same time, I really was um, thinking, you know, I really and I really need more female friends. Like I needed some girlfriends. So um, that's where it came from. So tell me about the sort of landscape of apps and obviously Facebook factors in here, but of helping people who are not high schoolers, who are not college kids to find friends. So tell me what you found. So so there are apps, as you said, you know, there's specific apps for friends, uh, even for women meeting women on a friendship basis, you know, nothing sexual. Um, but there are also, you know, Meetup is a group that, you know, people form all sorts of groups. They could be volunteer groups, book groups, um, sports groups. We're going to kayak together. We're going to run together, whatever. Uh, so that's a great place. I turned to Facebook. Um, so I, I'm a scuba diver, and I, one Saturday morning, was irritated that none of my friends were available to dive. So I uh, went on Facebook, and someone had told me about a group called Scuba Girls, so Facebook groups. So I just posted and said, I'm looking for new buddies. I'm looking for new friends. And I was stunned at how many women wrote back immediately and uh, said, hey, you know, I'll, I'll dive with you, but also I'll, let's have a drink. I'll be your friend. That's interesting. <laughs> well, and it's interesting, too, that there are a bunch of little startups to help you make friends, but the ones that you mention, Meetup and Facebook, are both websites that have been around for a good long time and are not expressly to help you find a friend. Exactly. But they have a mass of people on them. And some of the newer startups, you know, I wonder uh, when I was looking, worry about it, how many people are really on it? You have to be pretty tech savvy to know um, about some of them. So, you know, if you really want to broaden out these Facebook is used for all sorts of ways, you know, so um, it's a great one to go to. Do you think that technology is or will completely change the way we make friends. I mean, I think in some ways you use Facebook a lot. Um, And in some ways, I think people think of Facebook as a way to connect to people you already know, right? You can check in on what's going on with your cousin across the country or the person that you roomed with in college, but they... You know what I mean? Moved out to Arizona, so you don't talk to them anymore. Um, But then you get to see their kids and stuff on Facebook. But this is using Facebook in the opposite way, which is like, I don't know you yet, but I would really like to know you. I'd like to know you. Yeah. I think it is going to influence it. I I do think Facebook is huge for staying in touch, even with people. You know, okay, we can see our cousin across the country, but even, you know, some of my best friends, I can really see what they're doing, what the kids are doing every day. I can, you know, text them later. Hey, that was, you know, looks like you had a great party, whatever it is. But I do think what you're asking, um, are we going to reach out more? I I hope people do. I think 
think it's um, sort of a great way because often you know people. One of the things that was key in this Scuba Girl post that I put up is a number of people I already knew wrote me, were, were hmm. members of this group, divers, you know, friends actually, real friends in real life, people I've dove with. Uh, women wrote and said, hey, um, hi, I'll, you know, I'm here too, don't forget me, but also said, hey, everybody else, I'll vouch for Elizabeth. You know, oh, she's yeah. fun or she's she's a good diver, she's fun. So you Facebook allows you to see those degrees of separation. You feel a little better, like maybe you're not meeting a total stranger. So tell me how some of these like friend dates, we'll call them, went. Because when I've talked to people who have done romantic dating, you know, like a Match.com, OkCupid sort of thing, they will say you have to go on a ton of dates to meet, you know, your prince, princess person. Yeah, you have to kiss a lot of frogs. That's right. <laughs> it's the same. Although I have to say it's easier because you're not looking at that person and envisioning your entire future, you know, thinking, oh, I could never kiss this person. You know, so you're not really um, – the, the you're not – it doesn't feel that stressful. You just have to sort of have a nice time, which is what you're supposed to try to do on a date. But, you know, there's other pressures, I guess. But, you know, so so they were all pleasant. You know, they were nice. I These were interesting women. Um, you know, we had stuff in common. Because I had, you know, chosen to reach out to scuba divers, which I do. Right. Um, but uh, you know, you know, and they they had interesting jobs. One was a marine biologist, so there was a lot to talk about. But you know, when the chemistry was there, mm. and you know it almost immediately. Like, oh, I'm sitting with a very interesting person, and this is pleasant. But I can just tell, like, we're not clicking really. Right. And uh, one in particular, we sat down and within five minutes had just clicked, and you know, just almost started laughing about it because I didn't realize she also knew she was on a friend date. She was also, you know, with intent looking for friends. So, um, you know, I thought, oh, I'm the person doing the asking. But uh, she also knew that she was hoping uh, to make new friends. If someone asked you and said, like, I really want to do something similar, either I've moved somewhere new or just don't have a lot of friends in, in the town where I live, I'd like to meet new people. What would your strategy be for them now that you've kind of sifted through things and learned your own lessons about how this works. Well, the first thing is you have to get over that stigma that, you know, I'm all alone or, you know, something's wrong with me if I'm looking for friends. So even if you're introverted or shy, you want to push yourself out there. If you're looking for friends, you need uh, to really make yourself a little bit bold and vulnerable. You have to, you know, realize like, you know, I've got to try this. Not everyone's going to work out. You know, the research, it's interesting, shows that Men may have a harder time for this, uh, partly because they're a little less willing to be vulnerable. And also um, there's a fair amount of research that shows that you know, they, they worry that if they approach somebody, um, uh, it's seen as a sexual advance, mm-hmm. even another man. So they are less likely to reach out and it might be a little harder. I, I doubt they're going to just burst into tears and bond right away. Right. Or, you know, my new scuba girlfriend, we bonded over curly hair immediately. So, I, I, you know, it's a little harder for guys to start yammering about their hair. Elizabeth Bernstein is a columnist at The Wall Street Journal. Thank you so much for being here. Thanks for having me. Elizabeth Bernstein's column about finding friends, which we've got a link to on our website, inspired me to try it out for myself. Now, I know a bunch of couples, including some that are married uh, and some that are engaged, who met online. 
And according to the Pew Research Center, about 50 million people use apps or websites to find dates. But if you're trying to find a friend, there are only a few friending apps out there. I used one called Heyvina, which my producer helped me figure out. Same model as Tinder. You yeah. swipe right on people you want to meet <laughs> okay. and left on people you don't. Awesome. All right. All right. I've actually never used Tinder. Hey, Vina starts with a little personality quiz. All right, what's your guilty pleasure? Chocolate. And you have to describe yourself in a tiny blurb, which is hard to do. Let's see. Maybe like, I don't know, lived in the Boston area for a while. After lots of agonizing, I finally set up my profile. So we've set the bait. Mm -hmm. Now we just need to see if anybody bites. Yeah. I was ready to start fishing. So for the next phase, they give you a list of women on the app who live near you. And then there are a few little details about their hobbies and their interests. So I started swiping through to see if I could find a friend. Um, I'm going to have to swipe left because I, I don't know what one of our references is. So I am concerned that we may not have enough in common. <laughs> Um. Oh, pot. Oh my gosh, she's into podcasts. How about that? And drinking tea. Oh, I like tea. Oh, I like burritos also. Eventually, I got a match. We met at a bakery in Boston, and we clearly knew who each other were when I walked in because we were both kind of looking for someone, but not exactly knowing who we were looking for. Why did you decide to use an app to like find a friend? Because I didn't have any. The woman I met was middle-aged. She's in tech. Uh, she's worked in big companies before, but she's at a small startup now, so she doesn't have a lot of ways to meet new people. Boston is one of the hardest places I've found. And I've lived in a number of places across the United States and worked all over the world. This is probably the least... I don't want to say least friendly, but... Um, People are very comfortable with the groups that they have. So when she read about Hey Vina in the paper, she decided she'd try it. There really aren't that many outlets, and people are becoming self-employed more and, you know, doing startups and all kinds of things to try and move, move their life forward. And so it's, it is. It's tough. And this may be one way to do that. We'll have to see. Expanding dating apps into friending seems like a smart idea because you need multiple friends, but generally you only have one romantic partner. Somehow, though, there seems to be a stigma against admitting that you want to find more friends. Hey Vina, the app I used, is still in its infancy. Bumble, a well-known dating app, has recently expanded into the friend-finding thing, but it's unclear how well it's doing. And while researching this story, we came across many, many failed apps. My name is Nermeen Jastani, and I'm the founder of Bumel. Bumel was an idea that I came up with when I was living in New York. It was about 2010, 2011, and I had just moved from law school. And I had noticed that I had a really hard time making new friends. She started asking around, talking to other women, and the more she asked, the more people admitted that they were also having trouble finding new friends. That's when I think I started to realize that something interesting that was going on, 
this is the new problem, that it's easy to find a date, it's hard to make a new friend. Nermeen ran Lumel from 2012 until this past May, when she finally closed up shop. She says that friending apps are a tough business, and she thinks the biggest barrier is that social stigma. When I think about dating, I mean, Match.com has been around since, what, the early 90s, if not earlier. But it's only kind of become socially acceptable today to say, oh, we met online. So, and that's, what, 20 years? According to Nermeen, we are inching our way closer to a different mindset. Just in the last year, you know, we've seen four new friendship apps pop up. That wasn't the case, you know, three years ago. But it's hard to say whether we'll ever get over ourselves when it comes to finding friends online. Havina recently raised $1.4 million, and it turns out that one of its investors was Tinder, the dating app. And Y Combinator, the same company that funded Airbnb and Dropbox, has invested in other friend finders. Personally, I have not spoken to my new friend since our date. We had a great conversation, I think, but I just haven't reached out. And it's tough because there's a lot to fit in every week. Like, for example, now that I'm up on online dating and friend-making, maybe branching out with a new show. It's kind of addictive. I wonder if somebody does have a podcast that's just like them on Tinder. It's probably a podcast. We could look that up. Hey, this is Kara. So before we move on to the next interview, I've got a quick thing to tell you about the world of podcasts. Not everyone knows about them. Not everyone knows how to listen to them. I know. Shocking. So this month, we're asking you to tell a friend about a podcast that you think they're going to love, whether it's Planet Money, whether it's Freakonomics, Innovation Hub. So just recommend something that you enjoy to someone that you really like. And then if they don't know how, just show them how to download it. You can tell them in person, of course, or you can do it on social media and use the hashtag tripod. It's T-R-Y-P-O-D. I'm also interested in what you recommend because I'm always woefully, woefully behind on podcasts. We're at iHub Radio, and I'm at Kara E. Miller. Thanks, and now on with the show. Innovation Hub is supported by Destination Medical Center, a strategic economic initiative with Mayo Clinic to invest and innovate to improve life science, medicine, and health worldwide. Learn more at dmc.mn. Some people make a love match online. Some people find a friend online. Virginia Heffernan made a more unusual connection. While we were all hurrying through the online world, like people trying to get on trains at a train station, she looked around at the station and thought, wow, this place may be a little bit grimy, but actually underneath, it's really beautiful. Not that the grime hasn't occasionally even gotten to her, like when she was writing for the New York Times. I was trying to read an article on the front page, and I was fighting with A.G. Edwards, which had an ad that was obscuring everything I was trying to read with a tiny little X in the cor- in you know a corner that I could that I was racing to try. To, it was like playing some kind of Pac-Man thing. I was racing to try to find the X before I was sort of drowned in the ad. And there was also some grime when she was working for Yahoo. You know how Michael Pollan says you shouldn't uh, eat anything your grandmother wouldn't recognize as food? Well, I felt like I was suddenly doing something my grandmother would not have recognized as journalism. 
But Virginia Heffernan, whose new book is Magic and Loss, The Internet as Art, has been enthralled with the online world for almost four decades, starting when she was nine. I called it the computer, as my mother did (laughs) in the family, because... We used a modem to dial in, you know, an old coupler, press the receiver into the coupler and seals it off. You know, it's kind of like a kayak, you Mm. know, this rubbery thing. And we had one phone line in Hanover, New Hampshire, and I would tie up that phone line hour after hour, day after day. And my mother would yell up, stop playing the computer, (laughs) which is basically what it meant to be on the Internet in those days. It was ARPANET era. There was um, a mainframe computer in the middle of our hometown that, you know, we would convince our parents we wanted to access so that we could one day work for NASA and instead play an adventure game. Which, you know, fortunately worked out for you. So (laughs) I didn't not learn to code. I certainly did not learn anything about aerospace or working for NASA, but <laughs> I did get involved early on in an adventure game with a heavy social chat element. Hmm. Um, again, so far before Friendster, MySpace, Facebook, Twitter, that we didn't even, re- we had no idea what to call it. At the same time, we were helping to invent the digital culture we recognize today. Right. All that stuff. Do you write in all caps? Do you write in little cute all lowercase? Are you going to be one of those people that makes reply all mistakes? Those were there at the beginning. And, you know, the Internet, the story of the Internet is usually told as an engineering story and a business story, military story. But, you know, I want to make a case that it's also been a cultural story. Yeah. And also been a culture story from the beginning. I have to say on the reply all thing, at least Mm. four times a week, I look into my sent mailbox and say, Phew. (laughs) I I actually just sent it to that one person. Thank goodness. Now I can continue with my life and and not be scared to death. Absolutely. Yeah. It's one of those one of those mistakes. But, you know, in in analog space and in live human interactions, there's similar errors. You, That's you know, right. there's the first time you ask someone she's pregnant when she's not <laughs> um, or get asked if you're pregnant, as has happened to me when you're not. You know, and a reply all error is is, you know, a kind of metaphor for those kind of social mistakes. And now kids that grow up digitally native learn that stuff as part of coming of age in digital space. Right. As it's part like of etiquette. learning who you are yeah. socially. Yeah. Etiquette. yeah. Exactly. When did you start thinking about uh, the Internet as you think about it now um, and as you make the case for that it's a piece of art, really? Yeah, I proceeded on two tracks because I I came to the Internet very early and I came to it. I was instantly enraptured by it and absorbed in it. I like to say that instead of addicted because from the outside, we tend to pathologize involvement with the Internet. But that's certainly not what it feels like inside Mm -hmm. when you you're heavily engaged in a Facebook conversation about Hillary Clinton, say, or you're really working on a photograph for Instagram, or you're seeing other beautiful photographs on Instagram. That doesn't feel like an addiction to me. Right. But so because I had that going on, and then I also was pretty deeply immersed in books. So I had a bookish childhood. I was one of those kids that wanted to stay inside and read books. And in earlier eras, I probably would have been told I always had my nose in a book. Mm -hmm. So if you're a kid that prefers 
um, words to flowers, say, or mm-hmm. words to soccer, then you've already decided that this symbolic existence, that this mental existence holds more pleasure for you than three-dimensional objects in space, that bodies yeah. in space, or at least at least equivalent pleasure. It's, so a really, it it's a really interesting point because a book is a physical thing and people talk about wanting to get their kids into books and not mm. having them sit in front of screens all the time. But as you mm. say, it's a physical thing, but it, 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 it really means nothing if you don't know what those little scratches on the page mean. I mean, it, yeah. it isn't anything intrinsically. It's just a bunch of ideas. It's funny that it's it's the spectacle of someone absorbed in a symbolic order, in a symbolic universe, in a fantasy universe, is not very pleasing to parents and and other family because we tend to like when people are alert and aware so that they are alert and aware of us. Uh-huh. And especially as parents, that they can be they're responsive to us and our commands. Right. <laughs> so sometimes, you know, the kid absorbed in either the book, because we should remember that in the 19th century, the book was supposed to books and novels were supposed to instill poison into the veins of women who read them. That was the expression hmm. on the grounds that they were going to be the stories of adultery or 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 extramarital sex would corrupt them. And, you know, we hear something of the same thing of the dis- in the discourse of disease and attention span issues and, and neuro dangers, you know, wrought by the Internet. Do you think it's possible to, um, like, savor this piece of art like we would a painting uh, without worrying that, in fact— we are addicted, or in fact, there's no amount, because unlike a piece of, you know, a painting, which is is finite, the internet gives you the feeling that there's one more article that you should read, that there's one more site you should take a look at, that you never actually saw that video that your friend recommended, but Hmm. I mean, it's time to go to bed, and you can only look at so many things in a day, right? We are just like rapaciously hungry for all, for, you know, for the stuff on the internet, and partly that's because we're confronted with this incredible, this vast, almost, you know, I think of it like looking at the stars in the sky, the kind of information that Google has set out to organize, the kind of digital information. And of course, we feel small when we look at it. We feel like there's some imperative or pressure to master it. And I do think that there is a possibility of beholding the internet, as you say, as you might a great painting or the David or another work that brings chills to your spine, you know, a beautiful opera, to think of the internet writ large as this collective work of art, this new civilization that we are extraordinarily lucky to get to be present for, to get to be present at the genesis of. And there is a way to sit there and see it as if you're beholding a Rothko for a second. But what's great about it and what's different from a Rothko is that this has billions of authors, the internet does, and we are all part of it. And so in a way, that kind of astonishment at the internet is astonishment at our, you know, at our, at our fellow, fellow humans. It's at humankind. I'm Kara Miller. You're listening to Innovation Hub, and I'm talking to Virginia Heffernan, former writer for The New York Times, about her book, Magic and Loss. So what do you think are kind of the new rules for the Internet, as opposed to um, older art forms like plays, like television? As you well know, in the early days of television, they got playwrights to come in and write plays um, and then stage them you know, for the camera. So they thought they would be teleplays. They would be exactly like plays, but just on television. 
they had uh, you know directors and and dramaturgs and all these roles that television doesn't have now in the age of you know showrunners and story editors and producers who produce you know in the case of reality television produce not a show but a person's role in a show um and so you know obviously in short order everybody realized that television was going to take more cameras it was going to take a different entirely different kind of staging lighting entirely different kind of actor yeah entirely different kind of and you know and the same thing happened um with the internet you know several years ago at the paley center you know for in new york for um media i was talking to some comedy writers on a panel and they had written for saturday night live and the simpsons and so forth and they were only at the time realizing that they would that they were writing as much for these short YouTube uh, extracts and excerpts from the shows as they were from, mm. you know, for the show with the right. long line. Right. And so does that mean that television should, well, does that mean television producers should shift to making original short content like Funny or Die does for online? Mm-hmm. Or does it mean that they should produce television with a different set of beats that's short, that lives in the two or three minute thought, that's sketch driven, you know, or that, by the way, or that can play in GIFs. You know, if you conceive of the Internet as something that is changing civilization and and how we act with each other, and if you think about it as a piece of art, I wonder how you uh, think about the way that people uh, act in relation to that art. So, Here's a little example. I Mm. often walk through uh, Boston Common all the time, and I see people taking pictures that are so clearly meant for Mm. Instagram or Facebook (laughs) or whatever. And I really feel like if you went back 25 years and you walked through the same place, you would see people taking pictures, but they weren't the same kind of pictures. People pose differently. You know, you can tell what they're doing it for and where this is destined to go. So do you think like the internet changes us even when we're kind of like not on it? Yeah. It's no surprise to me that a kind of emphasis on mindfulness, secular mindfulness, staying in the present moment has risen at the same time as, as its rise has tracked with the rise of the web. There is, and this is part of the loss that I talk about in the book. You know, there was a time when my children were born and suddenly I thought, you know, what is the the purpose of children. They're not going to be farmhands. They're not going to do service to the empire. You know, <laughs> are they these vanity projects that serve as models for our constantly circulating photography? It just like crossed my mind. You know, there what was are a children when, for? They're for Facebook. What are of children for? Right. They're for, what are you going to put on your feed? Um, and uh, they're brand building for the parents. Um, my son at one point saw a computer. So He saw a laptop at Starbucks and someone intently looking through it. And he said, baby, because he thought the only reason someone would study a screen (laughs) would be to see pictures of him. Oh, my gosh. You know, I thought about the amount of time I was looking at my children through my phone, you know, through the lens on my phone. And also then going over the pictures, you know, and there's been times when my daughter said, how many likes did that picture of me get? She's six. And I thought something about this is wrong. You know, (laughs) I mean, everybody wants to be popular and pretty, but there's something a little having a metric on that. Put it that way. It's just that doesn't seem right. And that that did that called my attention for what it's worth to the importance of 
you know, very focused meditation practice to say, be here in the present, not, you're not thinking about how this will play in cyberspace. You're, you know, actually in the room you're in. Finally, how much do you think that the internet uh, and the companies that sit atop it, the, the Facebooks, the Googles, the Apples, how much are they about the humanities and about these kinds of human stories rather than about tech, which is how we all tend to categorize them? What's interesting to me is we think of the internet as an engineering experiment, but everyone ever associated with the part of the internet that we all most understand, the open web and apps, the people associated with them are remarkably aligned with the humanities. So Steve Jobs always called himself a humanities person. Hmm. And some of his first experiences with Steve Wozniak were trying to make Dylan bootlegs, trying in some ways to liberate music. He had this one hallucination one time in his early adulthood where he he was taking some kind of drug and he felt like this wheat field played the music of Bach. And he, I think from there he thought that this kind of disembodied sound, like sound that might come through an object you least expect it to come to but come right to you, was part of his his aspiration. And then we know him as this later life Buddhist who you know had all kinds of mystical beliefs and then contrast that to the other cradle of tech in Texas, where Compaq, say, is founded and run by very religious Christians. Hmm. You know, they had a great faith in the afterlife. They still do, as far as I know, sit on boards of churches. And that's where they, the idea of the cloud originated. Huh. So, you know, where all our information lives forever. Right, right. So I do think that tuning into the sort of yin or the right brain of technologists does companies very well. You see that in, and and typically that ends up in what's called the marketing departments. You know, I, I wish there were a better name for it, but someone with Tinder invents the ingenious right swipe technology that allows you to find a romantic match very, very quickly. But then the marketing person, Whitney Wolf, is responsible for finding out whether women will ever be comfortable meeting someone just on their looks like that. And that takes finesse. That takes an understanding of human nature and an understanding of a certain a vocabulary from the humanities, I think, that, that um, illuminates human nature better than any just raw technology can. Hmm. Virginia Heffernan is the author of Magic and Loss. She's a contributor to the New York Times Magazine and a former TV critic at the New York Times and at Slate. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you. That was great. Thanks to the people who helped put together this show. Senior producer Matt Purdy, associate producers Mark Solinger and Caroline Lester, and engineer Doug Sugertz. We also had production help this week from Matt Toda and Jonathan Gang. Our podcast is in iTunes and it's on SoundCloud, so you can find an interview you missed or you can share one with a friend. From PRI and WTBH Radio, I'm Kara Miller, and this is Innovation Hub. Support for Innovation Hub comes from Dana-Farber Cancer Institute. Discover. Care. Believe. PRI. 
Public Radio International. Support for Innovation Hub comes from Cambridge Savings Bank. Introducing the CSB1 package, a checking account combined with investing through Connect Invest to help you build a better tomorrow. CambridgeSavings.com/CSB1.